Welcome to the Let's Talk About It podcast, a modern podcast for the modern society. This show looks at cultural topics from the lens of an African-American male living in the nation as a natural-born citizen, where education, headline news, human rights, politics, and the American diaspora ultimately impact our local and national communities. The premise of this show is to inform and transform our worldview and empower those who are marginalized and oppressed due to the American hierarchy of importance. Nothing is off limits because this nonpartisan program will speak truth to power instead of being politically correct or following a popular narrative. So, if you're ready for what's about to be served, let's talk about it. What's going on, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Let's Talk About It podcast. I'm your gracious host, Maurice Bowers, and I thank you for tuning in to episode number five, You're Not Alone. If you're a first-time visitor, I greet you with a warm welcome and ask that you go back and check out our program trailer if you haven't already done so. That way you'll have an idea of what's to come from this program and even learn a little bit about me. Then come back and make yourself comfortable. Now, if you've come into the room before, I say welcome back, and I'm glad that you're here. As you get comfortable and we prepare to fellowship with one another, I will offer my listener discretion statement. This podcast isn't for the faint at heart or those with an agenda to argue what's being shared isn't true or considered fake news. This conversation's going to happen whether you like it or not. It's okay if you become uncomfortable with what you consume. Try listening with an open mind it won't be as bad as you think. The content you receive today is rich in research, meaning I'm sharing facts and not baseless commentary. Let me be more than clear that I have not earned a doctorate of philosophy. I'm not a psychologist nor a therapist of any kind. As such, I will be sharing my critiques and opinions based on my undergraduate education, along with my own perspective relating to the topic. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, Today's episode will address the state of mental health in America, how the presidential elections impact us, and how life circumstances tend to mess with our thought process to the point we often make drastic decisions that impact the lives of others. This is a very important episode to offer to my listeners, so I hope you're ready for the info that is about to be shared. I welcome you all into my virtual home, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between. Come have a seat at the table, and let's get into this episode. With all that's happened since the beginning of the year, what I call the plague, better known as COVID, the helicopter crash that claimed the lives of Gianna and Kobe Bryant, along with seven others, the presidential campaign season, police brutality primarily centered around Blacks, and the resurgence of oppression and racism within our nation, I thought it was important to address mental health as many of us have been impacted by one or more of the experiences I've described. 2020 has been one of the longest years in history with everything that's gone on, so much so that it feels like it's never going to end. It seems like every day we go to bed with some type of headline at the forefront of our thoughts, and then we wake up with even more headlines on our phones, laptops, or even tablets. We just have no idea of what the headline is going to be for that day. Let me offer an example. On Monday of this week, alerts about the final meeting concerning the vote to approve Amy Coney Barrett came from several outlets in the morning. By late afternoon, the move to vote on confirming Ms. Coney Barrett was an alert. And of course, 
By early evening, we were informed that a 52 to 48 vote was in favor of Ms. Coney Barrett confirming her as Associate Justice to the Supreme Court. If I'm going to address her nomination, I'm going to speak on that alone and get back to the topic of mental health. The problem with this nomination isn't about it being a woman, because the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as some of us call RBG, last held that seat prior to her passing. It isn't about her nationality, her career, or even her political affiliation, even though the last has been a major talking point. The issue is that her nomination was allowed to happen eight days before the presidential election this coming Tuesday. Under the prior presidential administration, Senators worked hard to prevent a nomination going forward for nominee Merrick Garland. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, anything I address is going to come from a place of facts, which can be verified with the great and reliable resource known as Google. Mr. Garland was nominated to fill the 2016 vacancy on the Supreme Court created by the death that February of Justice Antonin Scalia, an icon of conservative jurisprudence. But even before President Obama had named Garland, and in fact only hours after Scalia's death was announced, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell declared any appointment by the sitting president to be null and void. He said the next Supreme Court justice should be chosen by the next president to be elected later that year. In a speech that August in Kentucky, McConnell went on record to say one of my proudest moments was when I looked Barack Obama in the eye and I said, Mr. President, you will not fill the Supreme Court vacancy. But he wasn't alone. Eleven Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee signed a letter saying they had no intention of consenting to any nominee from President Obama. As a result, no proceedings of any kind were held on Garland's appointment. The Supreme Court had to convene that October with only eight justices, divided often between the four appointed by Democrats and the four appointed by Republicans. Shorthanded, the court deadlocked on a number of issues and declined to hear others. For his part, McConnell argued that the Democrats had at least contemplated a similar tactic back in 1992, when President Obama's vice president, then-Senator Joe Biden, was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee and mused about urging President George H.W. Bush to withhold any nominees to the high court until the end of the political season. At the time, the Senate had just been through a bruising battle over the 1991 confirmation of Justice Clarence Thomas. As it happened, no vacancy occurred in 1992. But McConnell and others referred to the quote-unquote Biden rule nonetheless in justifying the blockade of Garland. What makes this a problem and causes bickering within government and the larger community of citizens is that there had been no precedent that any appointment by a sitting president was to be null and void since the period around the Civil War and Reconstruction. No Democratic president has made an appointment while Republicans hold the Senate seat since 1895. This is essentially in line with what Democratic Senate leader Chuck Schumer calls the height of hypocrisy. The effort led by Senator McConnell was a punishment levied against both the Democratic Party and the American people for nothing more than electing the nation's first African-American president into office for two terms. You may say that isn't true, and if that's the position you choose to rest on, by all means, rest on it. However, facts are facts. 
Senator Eric Cantor went on record in December 2008 as saying, we're not here to cut deals and get crumbs and stay in the minority for another 40 years. We're going to fight these guys. He believed that if Republicans stuck together and made sure the president couldn't brag about bipartisan support for his progressive priorities, they could make him pay a political price for failing to cure the partisan divisions in Washington. The goal was not to make Democratic initiatives more palatable to conservatives. The goal was to make those initiatives unpopular, to scuff up President Obama's postpartisan yes-we-can media shine, and eventually drive the Democrats out of power. In January 2009, Senator McConnell gathered the Senate Republican Caucus in the members' room of the Library of Congress to warn his colleagues that they would have nothing to gain from working with the incoming president that bipartisan cooperation would just make President Obama look like a hero. Republican leaders simply did not want their fingerprints on the Obama agenda. As McConnell explained, if Americans thought DC politicians were working together, they would credit the president. But if they thought DC seemed as ugly and messy as always, they would blame the president. In his first two years in office, President Obama and the Democratic majority did a lot. They provided the stimulus package, the Affordable Care Act, sweeping Wall Street reforms, and even brought troops home from Iraq. But he was unsuccessful in convincing the public to like what he did as a result of Republican tactics. The ugliness of it all has lent to a resounding presence of voters using social media to be bold in disrespecting others in a way that they wouldn't be so bold to do face to face. Rather than operating with a mindset of agreeing to disagree, the agenda of individuals has been set on proving others wrong and labeling people as anything but children of God if they don't subscribe to a certain party. This has been evidenced even in the process immediately following the passing of Justice Ginsburg. There wasn't a bipartisan belief that agreed on pushing a new justice into the vacant seat. That was done as a measure to successfully have advantage in terms of representation. Six Republican judges, three Democratic judges. This was an intentional disregard for the democratic process and a definite hypocrisy of political proportions. Instead of owning up to a power play, the Senate, along with Sir Tweets a lot, moved quickly to have hearings to approve Amy Coney Barrett as the next justice. There was no list of potential candidates to consider, but just a quick pick of an individual at the ready by 45 For what reason? To have someone on the bench who can help disband the Affordable Care Act without having a a plan to replace it, meaning millions of Americans would immediately lose the coverage they currently had. This was evidenced by the near-immediate actions that took place over this past weekend, with Senator McConnell stating Sunday evening, a lot of what we've done over the last four years will be undone sooner or later by the next election. They won't be able to do much about this for a long time to come. With a sense of pride, he proclaimed, by tomorrow night, we'll have a new member of the United States Supreme Court. This form of behavior doesn't lend to an example of proper conduct or even character for our younger generations to follow. It just shows the tactics that are used when working in different atmospheres. A group I follow on LinkedIn called Leadership First posted a point that needs to be implemented among leaders in government during election season and beyond. It reads, truly successful and inspiring leaders must be willing to make several types of sacrifices to elevate their people. 
Great leaders serve those they're responsible for, no matter what. They don't have the luxury of blaming others. Instead, they own every failure and work tirelessly to help fix the problems. They understand that credit for successes must go to those who help make those successes possible, and they must be publicly recognized for their efforts. They inspire and motivate their team every day to ensure that everyone becomes the very best version of themselves. That's leadership. And unfortunately, many people are not willing to sacrifice for their team. In many instances, people want the perks of leadership without accepting that when you're a leader, it comes with a price. It's time for us to take a break. So when we come back, we'll blend the conduct of government in recent events with the impact that it has on the mental well-being of this nation's citizens not just politically, but in our daily functions and capacities. You're tuned in to the Let's Talk About It podcast. We'll be back in a moment. The Women's Inspirational Network is running a drive designed to help 500 children get the supplies they need at Bemis Elementary School in Rialto. If you have resources you would like to share, consider donating to this worthwhile cause. If donating tangible supplies, what's needed most is spiral notebooks, both one and three subject, pencils, whiteboard markers, pencil boxes, highlighters, crayons, colored pencils, glue sticks, scissors, and even privacy drivers for at-home workstations. You can donate funds or supplies by mail to the Women's Inspirational Network at 10808 East Foothill Boulevard, Suite 359, in Rancho Cucamonga, California, 91730. Or you may call 909-532-0713. Welcome back to the Let's Talk About It podcast. I thought it necessary to tie off what I was saying in the last segment by playing a clip that I was able to locate on the C-SPAN website. I'll explain more about it in just a moment, but take a listen as this clip is just over three minutes long. Mr. President, first I'd like to congratulate President-elect Obama on his victory. It's a rare honor for the Senate to send one of its own to the White House. In fact, I, I think it's only happened two other times, Warren G. Harding and John F. Kennedy. That is directly from the Senate to the White House. Uh, Regardless of party, uh, every one of us, I'm sure, feels a certain institutional pride in the event. Uh, I called the the new president shortly after his victory to offer my congratulations, and he was uh, gracious in congratulating me on my own victory uh, when he returned the call. As it happened, when he returned the call, I was grocery shopping at the local Kroger and um, enjoying the people passing by saying uh, congratulations. Uh, and so there I was in front of the cereal, talking to the new president on my um, cell phone. What I told him uh, was that uh, we'd all be here to work with him once he takes office. Uh, I think uh, both of us are eager to confront the challenges ahead. I told him he can expect cooperation on the confirmation of qualified nominees to key cabinet posts. Uh, Faced with two wars overseas and a complex financial crisis at home, the American people shouldn't have to worry about a power vacuum 
at places like the Pentagon, the State Department, Treasury, or the Department of Homeland Security. Now, history offers a fairly clear path to success or failure for new presidents. It's there for every new president who comes in to observe. And the path I've discussed for the president-elect is one that can lead to success. As I see it, we face a simple choice. We can either work together to confront the big issues, the big issues of the day, that neither party is willing or able to tackle on its own, or the majority can instead focus on a narrow partisan issue set that appeal to a tiny sliver of the populace, but which lack the support of the American mainstream. In my view, the choice is rather simple, but the work that follows will not be. So I hope President-elect Obama will go after the big things and go after them early. If he does, our chances of achieving a positive result for the American people will be greatly increased. We could start with some of the things President-elect Obama spoke about on the campaign trail, such as cutting spending, paying down the national debt, providing speedy uh, tax relief, committing to a long-term strategy for energy independence, and reining in our out-of-control entitlement spending that threatens to consume 70% of the federal budget in just nine years. Let me just say that again. Our out-of-control entitlement spending will consume 70% of the federal budget in just nine years. These are the challenges Senator Obama campaigned on. They also happen to be issues upon which Republicans and Democrats should be able to reach some agreement. The American people are looking to us to resolve these issues, and Senate Republicans are eager to get that work done. Senate Republicans are eager to get the work done. Issues upon which Republicans and Democrats should be able to reach some agreement. That clip is from November 15, 2008, almost two weeks after the presidential election that turned Senator Obama into President-elect Obama. Now, what should be quickly recognized is that such a speech as the one you just heard sounds good in nature, but it's the complete opposite of the experience we as citizens of this nation have had for nearly 12 years. There isn't much that needs to be said concerning political behavior since I've already laid the foundation in the prior segment. However, such a display of elementary schemes and tantrums has a way of impacting our own mental well-being. The constant barrage of news highlighting the falsehoods and untruths from those in power have shaped the attitudes of people to become so bold and brazen in how they speak to another person or even treat people that they consider less than. According to NBC News, 47% of workers surveyed say the election has affected the way they work as of March 3rd this year. 38% said that they avoid talking to colleagues because of their political views which I believe is the best way to keep the peace at work. Because of all the things we've encountered this year, in addition to this election season, people have become bogged down with what therapist Steven Stosny calls election stress disorder, which coincides with headline stress disorder, which I'm sure many of us have been susceptible to throughout this year. Without going too deep into the nine ways to cope with the political news cycle, I'll read the headlines and you can go and look up the details later. Number one, it's good to care, 
but you need to set boundaries. Two, practice values-based living. Three, take a social media break. Four, limit your news consumption. Five, set an alarm for the news. Six, ask yourself these two questions when reading the news. Is this article helpful? And is this article real or reflective of my own truth? If the answer is no, move on from it. Seven, pick up a new hobby or go to a very funny movie, which we know right now you can't go to, but use Netflix if you have to. Change what's changeable and control what's controllable and understand the difference comes in at number eight. And finally, number nine, celebrate the good things in American politics. The main reason for me doing this episode is because of the various initiatives that take place during the month of October and ultimately impact people well into winter and even spring, such as Mental Illness Awareness Week, which begins October 4th and ends on October 10th, which is also World Mental Health Day. October 8th is National Depression Screening Day, and the entire month of October is recognized as National Depression and Mental Health Screening Month. The latter is extremely important as this observance is designed to bring about depression awareness for all people. One thing that's most important to recognize is that not everyone experiences depression in the same way, but it can affect anyone at any given moment. What isn't always considered is that depression is a highly treatable condition with many different options available. October also happens to be Bullying Prevention Month, which is important with the alarming increase surrounding intolerance and bullying in schools and abroad. If we expect our children to be model citizens, we have to be in position to encourage them and to help make their environment safe and inclusive for all. The remainder of this episode is going to highlight mental health in its broad scope. Beginning in 1990, the United States Congress passed a resolution observing the first week of every October as Mental Health Awareness Week. The purpose is to dedicate awareness and education on mental illness. Over 25% of adults in the United States are estimated to be affected by a diagnosable mental illness every year. And 45% of those same diagnosable adults may be suffering from two or more mental health disorders. But what exactly is mental illness or a mental health disorder? According to the Mayo Clinic, Mental health disorders are a wide range of conditions that affect your mood, your thinking, and your behavior. There are nine types that are considered to be most common, such as clinical depression, which is characterized by persistently depressed moods or loss of interest in activities that significantly impair your daily life. Anxiety disorder, which is characterized by feelings of worry or fear that's strong enough to interfere with your daily regimen. Bipolar disorder, which is associated with episodes of mood swings ranging from depressive lows to manic highs, manic being a period of elevated, expansive, or unusually irritable moods. Dementia, a group of thinking and social symptoms that interferes with daily functioning. Attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, better known to most of us as ADD or ADHD, 
a chronic condition that affects the difficulty to pay attention, sense of hyperactivity, or even impulsiveness. Schizophrenia, which affects a person's ability to think, feel, or behave clearly. This one is very common as we know the acronym OCD, which is Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. This is excessive thoughts and obsessions that lead to repetitive behaviors or compulsions. Autism, a serious developmental disorder that impairs the ability to communicate and interact. Last, post-traumatic stress disorder, a condition where a person has difficulty recovering after experiencing or witnessing a terrifying event. What's important to recognize is that the nine disorders I just covered are not only experienced by adults or the elderly. What do I mean by that? We're entering the last two months of the year 2020, and this tends to be a period where many people have a harder time dealing with life based on whatever experiences are present, such as our children. Our youth and young adults have pressures levied on them that they didn't sign up for or ask to be a part of whether it be bullying in school or on social media, whether it be relationship breakdowns within the family, or even coming into their own identity as an individual with their own perspectives and positions. They're dealing with things that us adults have to stop saying. They aren't going through anything. They're just kids. That statement is so disrespectful and an unconscious way of thinking about a group of people who depend on the very support from elder generations that have the wisdom and foresight to assist them in navigating their existence. There's no reason why we're losing teens to suicide at an alarming rate. If you think I'm lying, let me help you out real quick. An article written in 2019 by the Los Angeles Times compiled the statistics of the Journal of the American Medical Association based on their research year of 2017 were 5,016 males and 1,225 females between the ages of 15 and 24 lost their lives to suicide. The numbers I just read account for that year alone, not a range of years. That's just looking at teenagers and young adults. We haven't even scratched the surface as it relates to the youth. Their suicide rate is 14.6 per 100,000 and this is recognized as the highest it's ever been since the government found it important to collect such data back in 1960. To help you understand the severity of suicide, it is now considered to be the second leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 10 and 34. This isn't isolated to a particular ethnic group, yet each group plays a huge part in how suicidal acts are committed, whether successful or not. It's our responsibility to stop being so insensitive to our children and acting as if they don't have things that they're up against. We have to stop acting like because they're kids that nothing serious is happening to them. You really don't know what they're experiencing, especially if you minimize their existence or their encounters. Youth and young adults alike have a hard time making sense of how to be and what to do when they can't turn to those who they should be able to trust the most. Clinical psychologist Lisa DeMore is quoted as saying, asking kids if they feel down or suicidal will not cause them to be down or suicidal. Don't be afraid to ask. 
I agree with her because your effort to just begin that conversation might open up the door to way more issues that you were unaware your child or children have been facing. While we want our children to be strong and independent in nature, we also have to be available to them because they depend on us to be their advocate and chair section when the rest of the world is everything but that. Like any parent or guardian, we wish to have access to the best resources and education for our children so that they may reach their goals and dreams, as well as prepare for success in college and their career. One person is working hard to assist the many children that attend the schools within the Linwood Unified School District, and his name is Gary Hardy Jr. Born and raised in Linwood, Gary has been a member of the school district's Board of Education since winning the 2015 general election and he currently serves as the president of the board. He also serves as president of the California Association of Black School Educators, a nonpartisan organization consisting of elected and appointed school officials, administrators, and instructors from across California who are committed to advancing equity for black students. Gary is an experienced policymaker and advisor with a demonstrated history of working in education management and various government platforms. His top priorities consist of expanding access to early childhood education programs to include ages zero through three, ensuring schools are safe, clean, and welcomes parents as partners while increasing parent engagement, and ensuring educational excellence for all students through equity, access, and justice by meeting the individual education and personal needs of every student with the strengthening of the district student services and health collaborative. If that weren't enough, he's also a parent whose daughter is growing in the Linwood School District. Re-elect Gary Hardy Jr. to the Linwood School Board, Linwood Teacher's Choice. I haven't forgotten about the adults, but we have to make sure that we highlight the younger generation since we hold them to being our future leaders and way makers of change for society. Just as we need to be alert for our children, we also need to be alert when it comes to adults. So that we understand the severity of mental health awareness, I'm going to give statistics as I wrap up this episode. Overall, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, which equates to more than 1% of all deaths. 40% of persons who are successful in their suicide have made a previous attempt. However, Nine out of 10 people who attempt suicide and survive do not attempt the act at a later date, which does bring about some comfort, but still shows the problem is real. Suicide rates are highest among adults between the ages of 45 and 64 at 19.6 per 100,000, with the second highest rate being 19.4 per 100,000 among those ages 85 years or older. Males are four times more likely to die by suicide in comparison to females being three times more likely to attempt to act in the first place. 44,000 Americans die by suicide each year, accounting for one death by suicide for every 25 attempts. When it comes to adults, factors such as employment, 
or the inability to provide for oneself or family is often a critical factor that leads to depression and even suicide. Not to mention substance abuse, such as alcohol or the abuse of prescription or street drugs. This creates a system that spirals out of control and can cause people to act out of character or even commit crimes when, if they were in their normal state of mind, they would never find themselves doing. The good jobs that used to be available to people with or without college degrees have become less and less with our economic fluctuations. This impacts the sense of meaning and purpose that employment helps each man and woman to maintain. Underemployment is just as much of an issue as unemployment is, yet we don't consider the experience that many people are subjected to because we often refer to decades past and how things always seem to turn around for everyone. And I do believe that somewhere around the corner, things will become better for people. However, people don't have the same sense of hope when they aren't able to keep what they've earned whether they're a homeowner or responsible for a car note or two. It's as if their entire world is closing in on them. And instead of them reaching out to those closest to them, they often clam up and isolate themselves, similar to how animals do when they know they're about to perish. They don't want their family to have to be worried, so they attempt to hide, only to be found later, and that sense of grief becomes even more heavy. Whether it deals with perfectionism, anxiety, depression, or some form of substance abuse, it's our responsibility to look out for one another, whether you think so or not. Offering support won't make their situation worse. It will actually reduce their stress because they know that someone actually cares. If that person is too far gone beyond what you have the ability to help, support them with encouragement to find a professional who is trained to assist in the coping process as well as establishing a foundation that will lead them to being in better emotional control of their life and various experiences they encounter. We have to remove the stigma that because we see a therapist, that means that there is something wrong with you as if you don't belong in society. Just like a medical doctor is designed to treat physical ailments, a therapist is designed to deal with psychological ailments. Therefore, your benefit and not to move you into a behavioral health center unless you are unable to manage yourself in a safe and sound manner. And even in those instances, just as there are 12-step programs for alcohol or Narcotics Anonymous, those centers can also work to rehabilitate you so that you are in complete control of your life and can return as a productive citizen within your community. I don't know who is supposed to hear this episode, but I hope that what I've shared helps to build a sense of confidence for those who are struggling as well as those who surround individuals who are struggling. All right, everybody, that's a wrap for episode number five of the Let's Talk About It podcast. I thank you for listening to the sociological perspective about the impact of mental health issues within our country from the mouth of an African-American man. Whether you're listening to this broadcast from your computer, your cell phone, your tablet, or even as part of your commute, your support is not taken lightly and greatly appreciated. If it's not too much trouble, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and even drop a review. Whatever your favorite podcast platform is, you'll see an option to either follow or subscribe. Just click the button and you're good to go. A five-star rating will also help to get the show among more listeners and move it up the ranks. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal thoughts, help is available. 
and the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is the resource. You can call 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255, and someone will receive you and respect you. If you or someone you know may be experiencing other mental health crises, there's a crisis text line that's available, and all you have to do is text the word HOME to 741-741. You can also reach the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. You can also Google mental health hotlines in your area that can be of assistance. But whatever you do, don't suffer in silence. It doesn't matter what you're up against. You will overcome any obstacle in front of you if you just hold on. Because great things are right around the corner. You matter, and the world won't spin the same without your existence. This episode came to mind from a presentation that was done earlier this month by my teenage cousin, Miss Jocelyn Renee Davis, who spoke about the importance of observing Mental Health Awareness Week, so I felt it was necessary for me to give her the proper shout-out she deserves. Thank you, Cousin Jossie, for bringing light to such an important subject. One last thing, as I've been talking about this over the past few episodes, if you do nothing else within the next five days, make sure you go vote like your life depends on it, because it does. Election day is Tuesday, November 3rd, so make sure you get out to the polls and exercise your right for your voice to be heard concerning your local, state, and national communities. As always, thank you for coming over to the Let's Talk About It podcast, and I look forward to sitting down with you again at the table soon. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Let's Talk About It podcast. We hope something that was said was both informative and transformative, in terms of your place in the world, and how various systems impact you. One person cannot change everything that's wrong, but, one person can begin the process of creating positive change. New episodes of the podcast will be available on Thursdays via your favorite platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or other available networks, so be sure to spread the word about this show. If you have any comments relating to this episode, or suggestions for future episodes, you can submit those by email to talkaboutitpod at iName.com. You can also connect with the show on any of our social media accounts. We can be found on Facebook as the Let's Talk About It podcast, or you can reach our host directly via Instagram or Twitter with the handle at Maurice B, as in boy, 8703. Make sure if you do nothing else, Be kind, stay humble, and work hard in all that you do. Until next episode, may love, peace, and blessings rest upon you.